0: Hi, this is Anubhav Gupta, Associate Director for the Asia Society Policy Institute, and welcome to the latest episode of Asia Inside Out, where we take you beyond the latest headlines and provide an insider's view on Asia and global affairs. Here at the Policy Institute, we've just launched a new website called Asia's New Pivot, where we look into evolving ties between major countries in Asia and the Middle East through a series of data visualizations. It's gonna be a pretty cool site, and I hope you'll all check it out at asiasociety.org. Given that the launch of this project is happening, uh, today we're going to be talking about India's relations with the Middle East. And I'm delighted to have with, with us one of the foremost thinkers on India's foreign policy, Professor C. Raja Mohan. He has a long and impressive CV with stints at various think tanks, newspapers and academic institutions. He writes a regular column on foreign affairs for the Indian Express and is currently the director of the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. Professor Rajamohan, welcome, uh, and thanks so much for giving us your time, and we're excited to talk to you today on Asia Inside Out. So let's jump right in. Very recently, uh, right before the Indian elections, we had S.J. Shankar on this podcast, and we spoke to him before the election about Prime Minister Modi's first term. One of the accomplishments, according to him, was its the strengthened ties and relationships with West Asia. He felt that that was something that Prime Minister Modi had invested a lot of capital, political capital in, and time into, and that those relationships, especially with uh, the UAE, with Saudi Arabia, with Israel, were a real accomplishment for the for the administration. Do you agree with that assessment? Uh, and why do you think that was the case? Why do you think the, the Modi government pursued um, West Asia as a priority?
1: I think the opportunities for India uh, in the Middle East uh were beginning to be, you know, emerge and present themselves, uh, but unlike the the UPA government that was there before Mr. Modi uh, took charge in 2014, was somewhat rooted in the past and some of the ambivalences about the past, about how to think about the Middle East. So I would certainly agree with uh, Dr. Jay Shankar, who was one of the key foreign policy advisors for Mr. Modi in the first term, who is now the foreign minister. Uh, he played a critical role in uh, in in executing uh, some of uh, Mr. Modi's uh, foreign policies, so so I would certainly agree with that assessment. But I think the, the big change that Modi brought about was not as if you've done something new, but but it was the way you thought about the region. Uh, I'll just give you one example about Israel. India established relationship with Israel uh, way back in the in the nineties, uh, uh, but uh, the Indian no Indian Prime Minister would travel to uh, to, to to Israel. Because there was still this sense of, you know, my Israeli friends used to tell me, India treated Israel like a mistress, uh, a lot in the private but very little in the public, that you don't want to be seen in the public. So the, the unwillingness of the political leadership, uh, partly the Congress leadership, uh, to be seen as uh, visiting Israel. Modi simply broke through it and in fact it was uh, another BJP leader, Vajpayee, who invited uh, Sharon to India, in 2003, if I recall right, so the the inhibitions that the uh, Congress governments had, that Modi was not burdened by it, and he was very eager to to have an open, transparent relationship with Israel. So he travelled there. Uh, then we had uh, the. Prime Minister Netanyahu come back to India. So so I think it is one to bring what was already a good relationship. There was significant economic relationship with the Israelis, a strong defense partnership. And it was easier to do it for Modi, uh, also because the old contradiction between Israel and the Arabs uh, is not the same one how it is perceived, its salience, its weight in the region's politics has changed. So that is one uh, major accomplishment. The second thing was the the phenomenal change in the India's engagement with the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. Here again, uh, uh, with Saudi Arabia, for example, uh, that uh, uh, over the last 15 years, I mean, there has been an expanding engagement, but still there was no political comfort level of the kind that Mr. Modi brought uh, to the engagement with Saudi Arabia. The Saudis, I would say, since uh, Crown Prince Abdullah visited India uh, in 2006, they were quite eager to expand the relationship. But India still uh, found it hard to really make the big leaps. Uh, what we saw uh, under uh, Prime Minister Modi is to, to be able to take that opportunity with Saudi Arabia. And we've seen, again, a phenomenal expansion. But the UAE, no Prime Minister had gone to the UAE for almost three decades. And here was a country which is almost like India's entrepôt uh, into the Middle East. Uh, you know, it has the, one of the largest Indian expatriate populations. Yet Delhi seemed uh, unwilling to 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 be enthusiastic, or rather, I wouldn't say unwilling, not enthusiastic enough. That again, Mr. Modi has changed. Yeah, I think the part of the change that has taken place is also the style. That in India, the Indian diplomacy was one of those most bureaucratized. Uh, Processes, I mean, and like most most major powers, I mean, systematized, bureaucratized. But Modi understood the Middle East is engaged at a personal level. You engage it at the leadership level. It's not something the foreign officers sit down, they Draft these laborious statements, and somehow the thing will filter down through the uh, administrative processes. But Modi understood: look, it was importance of having personal relationships uh, with uh, MBZ uh, in UAE and MBS. So I think he was willing to invest in that personal relationships, and and that is actually paying India a quite handsome dividends. And and I think this is very different from the diffidence of uh, the Indian, uh, or the kind of uh, tepid Indian diplomatic style uh, after Rajiv Gandhi left, and most of them were old men, they were not into this, but Modi brought uh, brought an energy. And another important factor that changed India's engagement was the attempt at classifying the Middle Eastern countries as pro-Pakistan or pro-India. That was again a legacy from the Cold War. Uh, India liked the guys in suits, uh, we like the Baath Party, we like the Iraqis, we like the, uh, uh, the, the Syrians, we like the Egyptians, the, the, the old suited, booted socialists uh, of a kind. But the Middle East is, is a different Middle East and, and we uh, di- were not comfortable enough in the past. With the Arab leaders, though historically the Arabs, uh, the, the, shall we say, the conservative Arab leaders, especially in the Gulf. And I think that Modi's today has changed that to say that, look, that whole distinction between monarchies and republics, uh, secular, non secular, these are the kind of parameters that kind of complicated, burdened India's engagement. And, and they attempted judging everyone the distance they keep from Pakistan. Uh, Modi realized, look, we don't we don't have to do that anymore. That if we give more into the relationship, the others on their own, uh, if our stakes, if their stakes in India grow, uh, they themselves would balance the relationships. And we've seen that happen both with the Saudis and the UAE. uh, To be that they're seeking better balance. They're not. In fact, they've helped India when the crisis in the Balakot, when the Indian pilot was captured. Actually the intervention by the two countries helped India to solve that problem. And more importantly, I would say, uh, the India's relationship with the OIC was a fraught one. India didn't like the OIC's uh, pontifications on Kashmir. It was always India would react uh, with a uh, kind of a prickly way. Uh, but it was no secret that, look, these are resolutions Pakistan carries to the meeting, everybody signs off, because everybody gets a laundry list, and everybody signs off on everybody else's laundry list. That's how multilateral meetings work, including okay, the yeah. non-aligned meeting, meetings. So Modi was not bothered by what they said, but the fact that that he was ready to engage the OIC, and the uh, UAE was uh, invited India to join the uh, Indian foreign minister, that's Mr. Jaishankar's predecessor, Sushma Swaraj, to come and address uh, a meeting of the, of the OIC, in Abu Dhabi, this is quite significant because if you know the history, that India had a huge humiliation when the OIC was set up in Rabat 1969. So it's really a reversal of that. And, and I think that tells you how much India has come, how much distance India has come, and how much the Gulf and the Middle East conservative countries have come uh, in dealing with India. This does not mean they're going to give up on you know, rhetoric on Kashmir, but it's created a new basis for engaging the uh, the Middle East and the Gulf in particular.
0: Yeah, that speaks to kind of the the heightened confidence with which Modi has truly represented India around the world. You know, you essentially mentioned how India's changed some of these relationships. It's gotten over some of its political inhibitions, as you mentioned, Modi's kind of had a more um, open uh, and proactive style to, to his diplomacy. Uh, and then finally, you mentioned how the, he's not allowed the, the relationship that some of these countries have with Pakistan to overwhelm or come between its relations with India let me ask you why India has chosen to do this. So talk a little bit about, you know, from India's kind of longer term strategic perspective, how does West Asia play into that? I know in the past that we had, you know, obviously, the energy relationship has always been important. It's very important today. And India is going to continue to be dependent on energy resources from the Middle East, you obviously had um, remittances playing a major role in the Indian economy, you know, a few percentage points of GDP for some time. But how has that, framework in the way that India views the Middle East, uh, how has that changed?
1: I would say the biggest change in India's approach to the Middle East is is the realism and the pragmatism, uh, which were lacking uh, in in the past, certainly uh, in the Cold War period. Uh, To step back a little bit, look at India's history with the region. I mean, I think if you go to uh, the time of independence uh, and the 100 years before that and 200 years before that, Uh, For the British Raj, India was the base on which they constructed their presence in the Middle East. So in some ways, the Middle East (coughs) had to be guarded because it was on the way to India. (coughs) That is, controlling the Middle East was essential for securing India, as well as to the Indian resources that went into securing the Middle East. So the, the the structure was one of deep interdependence under the Empire. But when Mas Nehru took charge of India in nineteen forty seven, he said, Look, we're not going to do the security stuff. We are non-aligned. So therefore the India is a security provider to the Gulf, that is the British India. India withdrew from the troll. And instead India said, Look, no, no, we are in this non-aligned coordination of working together with countries like Egypt rather than continue with a security role in the Middle East. So a historic disconnect was was engineered. The second was the integration, that the Gulf was deeply integrated into Indian economy. Uh, As you know that uh, uh, much of the, you know, India was a dominant economy, and the Middle East at that time it had no oil, but it's very much part of the engagement. And uh, it was India that, that Bombay uh, printed the Gulf rupee and it was deeply interconnected. Mm -hmm. Now, Nehru's emphasis on socialism and self-reliance meant you actually were beginning to be less interested in exports, uh, import substitution. So what was, if the Middle East and the Gulf were very much part of India's globalized economy, uh, post-47 we were beginning to undo that. I'm not saying these are right or wrong, but that is the legacy. So it's only in the 70s when the oil crisis hits, uh, you begin to depend a lot more because India is growing and you need a lot more oil, so therefore the economic interdependence comes back and then you export labour mm-hmm. uh, because they're booming now and you send uh, labour to that. So so now economics came back in, in a very different form, which is oil and, and expats and remittances. Now this the Indian approach during the Cold War and b- fairly well into the early 90s was one of a mercantilist approach. Oh my God, I'm dependent on oil, therefore I must make sure I get oil at cheap prices rather than thinking about it as energy interdependence or of using this to actually build stronger bonds. So what we've seen under under Mr. Modi is really that, look, the, there is interdependence, that this must be addressed in a strategic perspective rather than... Either I'm not going to be interested in your security, uh, I'm only interested in what you do with Pakistan, or I'm not you know concerned about uh, a, a larger framework. So I think we are at the beginning of the construction of a larger framework mm-hmm. between India, uh, Modi's India, and the Gulf, where India would become see this as a formal strategic uh, frontier that, that needs to be engaged purposefully.
0: That's great. And that kind of brings me into um, what I wanted to talk about next. You mentioned this kind of broader strategic framework. And you also kind of mentioned how the British Raj really was a security provider in the in the Middle East in some ways. Today, that security provider is, is the United States. And so last month after the two tankers were attacked in the Persian Gulf, um, this is a tweet from President Donald Trump. Let me just read it really quickly. Um, So after the attack, he said, China gets 91% of its oil from the Strait, Japan gets 62%, and many other countries likewise. So why are we protecting the shipping lanes for other countries um, for zero compensation? All of these countries should be protecting their own ships on what has always been a dangerous journey. We don't even need to be there in that the U.S. has just become by far the largest producer of energy anywhere in the world. So... He's essentially questioning the role uh, that the US plays as a security guarantor in the region. Uh, He's questioning why the US needs to keep playing that role when today it no longer is dependent on Middle East energy. And though he did not specifically mention India in that tweet, um, it is definitely one of the countries that very much is dependent on those sources and um, needs needs that tanker traffic um, to be secure and safe. So in your mind, how do Indian foreign policy analysts and how does the Indian government view this U.S. ambivalence to the region? Uh, are they prepared for a Middle East with a much lighter U.S. F- footprint? And do they want such a region?
1: Uh, I don't know what the Indian public. I, I doubt if it is prepared for this because we've seen so much of the U.S. policy in the region as driven by oil and that the U.S. is like a permanent fixture. Uh, but Modi seems to understand that we're in a new situation. And at least the reports of his meeting with uh, Mr. Trump in Osaka said that, look, Mr. Modi told him that, look, we're sending our ships in to escort our tankers at least. So this idea that, that Trump talks about others must pick up the burden. Mm. So Modi was communicating him that, look, India is picking up the burden, that we are actually beginning to do this stuff. So that is just the beginning. So we got a long way to go. Mm. Uh, but before that, I think it's important to see, look, the US, on my view, is not going to do what it has done for the last 75 years, to the same extent in the next 25 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think given the the nature of the current debate in the US, which I don't think it's fully understood in India, that actually the debate is about retrenchment. Mm-hmm. While we've been used for the last 30 years of an American overextension in the Middle East uh, of paying any price, of bearing any burden for ambitious, if uh, unrealistic objectives like promotion of democracy. Uh, which is what the public in India, the, the, much of the political discourse is used to, uh, well, Trump is completely different. Uh, and I think that, that we are at a different moment in the U.S., whether this lasts or not, uh, this must be understood. So in many ways, I think Trump is forcing us to pay more attention to the U.S. debates of questioning alliances, uh, better burden sharing, uh, and the need for others to do more. So I think, we, we at least at the policy level, I think we're beginning to... Uh, adapt to this which which is which is a good sign but there's a long long way to go uh, in in this because uh, for india it is next door that we've had this luxury of the americans taking care of things mm-hmm. and and we had the luxury of uh, criticizing them for it but knowing fully well they're not going anywhere but today uh, there is a reasonable prospect where trump or his successors are going to scale down if not withdraw fully uh, from many parts of the world. So that India's rising power then needs to a lot more. And that's where the Modi's talk about India wanting to become a leading power, wanting to provide security, wanting to do more. Uh, actually, for India, is a huge opportunity. It's going to be costly, it's going to be risky, but in India that wants to play a larger role, today finds someone, Trump in his own peculiar, uh, shall we say, uh, not a straightforward way, but he's saying others, you, you do, more. Uh, all these days in Indian debate was Americans were stopping us from doing things. So I think it's an opportunity for India. India should take this opportunity, do more in the region, uh, contribute to public goods uh, and, and to be able to uh, work with other partners, uh, whether other Asians, uh, Europeans, uh, to be make sure that we create a stable structure in the Gulf.
0: So, a little more specific question regarding that that burden sharing. So, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Joseph Dunford stated that the U.S. hopes to recruit partners for a military coalition to safeguard strategic waters in the Gulf region. Specifically, he mentioned the Straits of Hormuz and uh, Bab al Mandab, and so. What do you make of such a proposal? So kind of a coalition of the willing to 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 do that kind of work, and is that something that you think the Indian government would be open to formally joining, or is that the kind of thing, as you mentioned, that you know India would kind of on its own, on its own basis, um, work to protect its ships? I w- I would think that
1: uh, this is the direction in which the U.S. would look. Uh, so I don't think the U.S. would fully withdraw, but it would want to distribute the burden among its friends. Uh, so far, the talk of the Quad, etc., uh, has been focused on the Pacific side mm-hmm. uh, and not enough on the Gulf side, I mean that, that there's been no real formal engagement between the India and the U.S. And in fact, there was a suspicion that, look, the U.S. doesn't really want India to do uh, too much. I, I don't know if that was true or not, but the fact is today, if this is serious, this merits a substantive discussion mm-hmm between India and the uh, and the US on how do we secure the gulf sea lines of communication but there the question becomes uh, you, you you asked is india ready now when it came to uh, the the whole question of uh, uh, how to deal with piracy in the region india tended to act on its own but was willing to coordinate with others it was not willing to join uh, you know, a, a collective effort because we are like the United States. So okay. We have the same uh, you don't want to be in a coalition that you don't lead kind of stuff. So so I think that problem remains. So if there is a genuine understanding, I think we can move towards where how do you distribute the burden? It doesn't mean US will charge in front and others are just going to follow. But if you can work out a system where India does some things with, on its own or in partnership with others uh, and the US sees the way in which a coordinated effort can be developed. And it doesn't have to be people just standing behind the American flag to do it. Uh, and I think now with the new arrangements that we have on the, the, the LEMO work, uh, where the logistic support agreement, uh, we now have the COMCASA where there's a security understanding, so I think there are ways in which we can construct collaboration in this part of the world. But there is a legacy issue for India but uh, given modi's uh, willingness to do new things but india in coordination with other other consumers of oil or with the with other responsible powers i think india can can be part of it but the terms of it still have to be negotiated
0: great and you mentioned you know the various ways you mentioned comcaso which is an agreement with the us essentially a defense information information sharing agreement there is greater strategic coordination with the united states uh, under prime minister modi at the same time, under President Trump, um, because of his Iran policy, um, there has been a little bit of strain um, in the relationship, um, especially on pressure on India's relationship with Iran. So in May, uh, US, the waivers for U.S. oil sanctions um, ended. India had already been reducing uh, its import from Iran. It's going to have to do so even more now. How do you see that straining relationship with either the United States or Iran? And do you think at the end of the day, does that ultimately force India to lower the amount of engagement it has with Iran? Does it have to pick, I guess?
1: Look, in all these kind of issues, there's always more room than, than is visible. I mean, when people say, look, either okay, with us or against us, or the... I think, but in the reality, on the ground, there is room to finesse, the room to slice differences, to be able to work without having to make this a single issue that makes or breaks. So I don't think Iran is a make or break issue for India and the US. We've seen this t- during the negotiation of the nuclear deal, mm. where it became a question of whether the US saying that, look, uh, either you, you want your own deal or you're going to stand up and defend the uh, Iranian uh, uh, violations. So... India was not a, we're not running a charitable society. That we are somehow the contrary to the public debate in India where you assume India is somehow an obligation to defend what Iran does. I mean, that was never true. I mean, India is not in the business of, you know, standing up for underdog. That, But that's the kind of image that we've created. Mm-hmm. Uh, India's looking after itself. But after all, I think Indian decision to vote with the West, vote with the US and the nuclear deal showed uh, the correctness of it was sh- shown when Iran itself cut a deal with the Americans mm-hmm. on terms which India would have never accepted, but Iran has accepted. Mm-hmm. So it's not as if America and Iran are not going to talk to each other. Uh, we've seen Trump even now seems to be saying those are open for an unconditional dialogue. So so I, I don't think, I mean, I don't buy this framing that somehow it is a kind of uh, end of the world. Uh, India has to choose or the U.S. has to uh, kind of take some definitive decisions. So I think Iran differences are manageable uh, because uh, uh, Chabahar has already got some exemption, but I, I don't see what you can take it if there is a warlike situation through that port, assuming the port is done. Oil, we have alternative supplies. Mm-hmm. So is- Saudis uh, and the UAE uh, are talking about it and uh, they could do more for India. So I think the problem is the public debate in India or in Washington is framed as it is US versus Iran. But sitting in Delhi, I mean, we also see it as uh, Saudi versus Iran, as the UAE versus Iran. So it's a it's a complicated dynamic regional situation in which India today at least is engaging all sides, and if Abe can go to Tehran, I don't know if it is the prompting of President Trump. So I think there is room. The French pre, French uh, Minister uh, Foreign Minister has also travelled to Tehran. So so I would say, India must engage both sides, but. But that doesn't mean India is going to keep importing oil in order to defy U.S. to demonstrate strategic autonomy, which is the kind of uh, silly way in which sometimes the left liberal wing in Delhi uh, formulates India's uh, uh, imperatives.
0: So I've taken a lot of your time. I know you're under the weather. Let me just ask one final question. So, you know, you mentioned how India's really upgraded its strategic engagement in the Middle East. It's also attempting to upgrade its naval capacity in the, in the Indian Ocean region for the same reason. China's been there um, as well. China's one of, you know, like India, is, is majorly dependent on Middle East energy. To what extent do you think that China is, you know, in terms of influence um, in the Middle East, diplomatic influence, as well as kind of capacity in the Indian Ocean region? Where do you think that competition, if there is a competition, where do you think that stands?
1: Look, I think one, we must stop. Recognize I think there's not enough recognition in this part of the world in India certainly and in the in the Indian Ocean. Look, China is going to be here like every other great power in the last five hundred years, start with Portugal, you start, Dutch, the British, the French, the Americans, everyone came to the Indian Ocean and as the Chinese dependence on the uh, on trade uh, on mineral resources on oil in this part of the world grows, Chinese are going to come and try and secure them. The only difference is, I mean, all the Western powers came from the other side and China is going to come here uh, through the east. And if you see, the routes are not very different from what the Portuguese did. You hug the coast, you pick up bases at the right places. Uh, it's it's the same stuff. So there's a huge historic pattern here. So so China is going to come. Now, what does it do to India? I think, I think for India, it's not that we can stop the Chinese from coming in. Uh, For India, the important thing is to not to see itself in competition, but do its own thing. Mm. That we need to step up our engagement, uh, strengthen historic traditional relationships, uh, like with Mauritius, or with Seychelles, or uh, with African countries, with the Gulf countries. Today, all those countries are saying, come and help us more. So it's not that there is no demand, Uh, it is not that there is no need So the the problem I would say at this point is mainly organizing India's security policy in a way that it responds to a new situation uh, in which the Americans are going to cut down their role, the Chinese are going to be a new force. Now, if India asks itself, do I want the Americans to run the oil's uh, sea lines of communication or do I want the Chinese? Of course we say the US, Mm -hmm. because we have a problem with China, we have a boundary dispute, we don't want to be, our spigot to be controlled by the Chinese whether the government of India says it or not. Uh, But the fact is, if Chinese are coming, they've got a base in Djibouti, Mm -hmm. an acknowledged first military base. Uh, They're doing things in Gwadar. They have a fairly significant military presence in Karachi. So it's it's a matter of time. The Chinese presence in uh, the Arabian Sea uh, to secure its own oil resources or it can present it as a as a as a favor to the rest of the world or pre f- favor to trump if trump is saying why aren't you guys doing anything here uh, that that so so i think it's going to happen so for india then it needs to step up to the plate uh, and i think we've seen some of that in the last few years under mr modi but i think there's a need for a lot more uh, for india to do it's begun to forward deploy the navy uh, it's trying to create well, Indians don't, nobody calls them bases yet, but it has created a range of special access arrangements. Is trying to develop special partnerships. Uh, some of them are historic, for example, with the Gulf. So so I think we are at the beginning of a process. Uh, geography is still in India's favor. But China has to have long legs to come in and do things in the Gulf. Uh, even with bases, it will still be constrained. While well, India is just next door. So in India that operates with the US with the French with the British with other partners will have a fairly significant role but we don't have to frame it as rivalry with China we don't have to frame it as uh, you know as a junior partner for the US but as something it is in the natural interest of India and that India can do this by stepping up engagement with its uh, uh, shall we say new partners in the west
0: great well That forward-looking, incisive note, I think, is a good way to bring our conversation to a close. Professor Rajamohan, thank you so much for for your time and your insights. Um, We we look forward to working with you again in the future. Thank you, Anubha.